I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending May 29th. In this episode, an interview with Daniel Cooley, the Chief Strategy Officer of Silicon Labs. Cooley says there's a radical change in the electronics business as companies expand outside their normal domains. Also, one of our popular columnists is Colin Barnden, an analyst who studies the automotive industry. Empty promises irritate him. And on this episode, you are going to hear a man who has been pushed almost to his limit. And we also have author David Benjamin, who recently read the 2004 book, The Great Influenza. We talked to Benji about the book and what the world has learned about pandemics and what it hasn't. Silicon Labs is a fabulous chip company founded in 1996. Its area of expertise originally was in RF circuitry. In recent years, the company is focused on the Internet of Things. Daniel Cooley joined Silicon Labs in 2005 as a designer. He was made vice president of the company's microcontroller and wireless unit in 2012, and in 2018 was named the company's chief strategy officer. During his tenure at the company, Silicon Labs has branched out into devices for enabling smart factories, smart homes, hybrid and electric vehicles, and data centers. Our sister publication, EDN, has assembled a brain trust, and Cooley kindly accepted an invitation to join. The goal with the editorial board is to get guidance on what people in the industry see as important trends and how those trends are viewed. The following interview was originally conducted by EDN editor Richard Quinnell and EE Times international editor Junko Yoshida. They asked Cooley about the technology trends that he sees. Uh, This is a big one, but there's too many misconceptions out there, and it's the way we are talking about machine learning and artificial intelligence. It is everything to everybody and means nothing uh, when I'm reading it out there, and that's a problem. I mean, there's actually really good applications for for machine learning and and AI, and it's fundamentally a new new kind of computing, actually. It's not this if-then-else-that kind of stuff that we've been working with since our last 40 years, really. It's just fundamentally different. And I think someone needs to sit down and parse out, you know, why it's different, where it is good for that we know today, the difference between like general artificial intelligence, which is Terminator and robots, away from basically where most of this is going right now. It's like dogs, drug sifting dogs, you know, like these things get trained really well to do something. You have no idea how it works. Like I can't talk my dog sitting next to me. I can't ask my dog, how is his brain working? I don't have to program his brain anymore. I just kind of train him. And so like not enough people are understanding what the technology is, how is it being applied? What is it being used for? What's it not being used for? They just say AI. And it's just like my mind blows and VCs are doing all this stuff and companies are starting and Every company on the planet claims to be an AI expert now, even though they're not. So AI, as a fundamental technology, what is it? What isn't it? Where did it start? Where did it come from? Trace it back to Carver Mead in the 1980s with neuromorphic computing. Draw the lineage. Like there's just, there's so many things you could do around AI. And I'm sure I'm not the first person to say that. And in fact, editors at EE Times and at EDN have certainly experienced that. We see company materials and the terminology is sometimes mixed up. In other instances, 
experts will assume a base of knowledge that doesn't necessarily exist. We asked Cooley, what else? Second thing is kind of security technology. Security technology has been primarily a software and really higher layer software problem for a very long time, but it's now working its way down into very deep in the technology stack, down to the foundries, actually. There's things that happen at the foundries, chip design houses, um, at every level of the technology stack. And so when it comes to security, I think the engineers need to know the, you know, why it matters. First of all, like we need to understand the implications for when it goes wrong, how it's implemented, and and really be able to connect this general concept that a lot of people feel like security matters to how is it being applied. And when it goes wrong, here's what happens. Um, you know, I think everybody understands, you know, you know, credit card theft and and you know the big stuff that we read about in the news because you know 100 million people's accounts got stolen, blah da 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 da. Um, but you know, how does it impact chip design? How does it impact embedded software? And and what are, what is the industry collectively doing about that? Um, encryption. I mean, there's a lot of people out there talking about this, but it's just noisy. It's another one of those very very noisy topics. If you can help distill it down to something that's that's manageable and meaningful, I think that that's important for people. A third thing, and this isn't so much core technologies, but but something I think that people need to understand a little bit more is kind of the role that technology companies play in the world. And that's that's changing over time. 20 years ago, the best tech companies, all they had to do was be good at tech and, and have the best mousetrap, you know, the best search. That's what made Google, Google. And the best cell phone technology made Qualcomm, Qualcomm. And, and you know, these big, big companies just were the best at what they did. But now everything has changed in, in the way technology has to be, you know, connected to the governments that are out there and the trust that these companies, that individuals have to put in tech companies. And you're trusting Amazon with a lot when you talk to Alexa. Um, and so, like, the technology companies have kind of come up in, in, in the, you know, the way energy companies have been scrutinized for a very long time, the way pharmaceuticals, transportation, manufacturing, uh, even entertainment, right? We have a, we have a whole division of our government, you know, looking after entertainment, you know, like you have to, it, we have rating systems on movies and TV and, and, you know, we have libel, you can't just publish anything you want. Right. And so like tech companies are going to have to contend with all this stuff. You know, you saw Microsoft in the 90s going through it, but that was just the first of, I think, 50 years of technology fusing its way into every ecosystem. Electronics are now intrinsic in society. And whether engineers like it or not, the industry is going to have to contend with societal issues, whether it's diversity, corporate social governance, investor expectations, or how the industry lobbies, Cooley said. Again, like it or not, the industry is deeply involved in politics. The obvious example, he noted, is that U.S. companies are now being barred from doing business with Huawei. Cooley said the other issue the industry has to contend with is that old business relationships are changing and that the technologies are following. He called it the fusion of the strata of the stack. The technology stack, you know, from, from hardware to cloud software is changing a lot. 
And the old stratification that that we've had or we've thrived on for the last 20 years isn't going to be the same technology stack in 20 years. Um, so like the, this, this, this fabulous chip design houses, and we sell chips to to uh, pure play software companies like Microsoft, um, you know, or Google, and th- those it's changing. All those companies are doing their own chips. They're going down stack. All the chip companies are moving up stack, like Nvidia or or Intel. Um, and so, like drawing some some uh, transparency, drawing some some concrete examples of this happening, uh, I think are important. Like the role that foundries play, like when. Global stop seven nanometers. That was a catalyst for a whole lot of stuff. That's going to kind of it's still trickling through the the system right now, or um, you know I, I I don't know just how the product exists across these layers is something also like that that matters now. Like when we make products at Silicon Labs, we have engineers at our company designing the chips. Of course, uh, we're a chip design company and we sell chips, and that's how we make money. But doing the embedded software on those chips writing, uh, building products for our supply chain so that we can make those chips securely. We have to, we have to deploy equipment into our supply chain uh, so that we can inject, you know, information in there. We have engineers writing software for the, for the mobile phones that have to talk to these devices. We have engineers writing software for the cloud, you know, to manage the data and, and software updates. Like the, the product itself exists across this entire spectrum now in a way that it just didn't even five years ago. And that trend is going to continue as well. So just the, 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 strat- the stratification of the technology stack, anything that you can do there, I think, so that a chip designer understands that what happens in the cloud matters to them and their product, or vice versa, even. When it comes to the IoT, the first question after, does it work the way it's supposed to, is, is it secure? We asked Cooley about IoT security. Fundamentally, Security is about trust, threat models, and math. It, it, it really comes down to that stuff and how you implement them and, and, and where you implement them in the technology stack. There's actually a tremendous amount of knowledge that you have to get to the point of understanding, you know, how does the math work? I mean, at the, at the fundamental level, it's encryption and algorithms that, that get us the security. That's the fundamental building block of, of everything and how we chain that into roots of trust and how we you know, be how careful we are about where we implement it, like how you implement it is just as important as what you're implementing, or even more so uh, in the security domain. Um, you can educate a lot of people on those things. And and those things are becoming table stakes in the, I promise you, in the markets right now, down to consumer grade devices. Um, we're starting to see, we have seen legislation that is driving this top down, which is, which is good, important steps in the right direction. We're seeing companies get uh, taken to court and pay massive fines uh, to the governments when they take the security laxly, like they don't update their devices, if they have weak password controls, if they use old encryption that they should have changed. Uh, and this isn't this is down to consumer devices, frankly. And the newest protocol standards that are out there, whether it's the latest Bluetooth, the latest Wi-Fi, the latest Zigbee, the latest thread, the latest any of this stuff, have these encryption techniques built into the standards themselves. So you cannot implement. A Bluetooth algorithm anymore without them. You cannot pair devices anymore without the most advanced uh, encryption techniques that are out there. So whether if a company wants to be successful in Bluetooth, they are going to have to do this. And I'm using Bluetooth as kind of the catch-all for the cheapest, most widely deployed wireless technology that's out there. Um, 
on building on top of that, securing the application itself, I think that's where more of the readers maybe have pushback there. You know, I guess we're selling security stuff, so we're start, we, we see customers wanting it is the best way I can describe that. You know, whether you're Fitbit and you want to secure the data that's sitting on that device, so, you know, you can't, you're, you're compliant with GDPR, um, or you are Philips in lighting. We have, that's a big customer of ours, or Ikea in lighting, and you, you want those light bulbs to not be hacked for some reason um, because they have network credentials into the Wi-Fi system on the network, and, and you don't want that to be sniffed. Or whatever the reason is, we're starting to see our customers in consumer and industrial and in, in building automation and smart cities demand uh, and, and bring new security standards into the market to us as a company. Um, you know, and, and, and I mean, that's a leading indicator of, of, of I think, where this is all going. But, you know, part of the reason that this has taken so long is, is that security has been expensive and nobody has, no, no company has really sat down and tried to secure anything except computers and phones. There just wasn't enough payback, frankly, for doing it. I mean, one of the things we're doing, and, and, and you know, I, I know my company really, really well. I've been here a long time, and I'm starting to see others do it as well, is try to simplify how you, how you secure applications. And that's one of the, been the biggest challenges that's out there is if you have a fish finder selling 10000 a year, how do you secure that thing? Or is it even worth securing, frankly speaking? And I promise you, a fish finder company wants now to transact on that device. They want that person to be able to load new data and charge 99 cents right before they go out on their fishing trip. And they need more security if they're going to transact, you know, dollars on that fish finder now. And, and so everything's turning into devices, a service or services, you know, based revenue akin to like downloadable content or the way video games have evolved over time. And so when you start transacting dollars on these devices, security matters a lot more. If you start transacting user IDs and, and passwords, security, you know, uh, comes up much, much higher. So we're starting to see it, you know, come to a threshold moment where whoever gets, whoever can simplify the implementation of security the best in the supply chain and into the customer needs is going to win. And a few companies like Silicon Labs and a few others are starting to take this stuff pretty damn seriously. And if you can make it easier to do, make it easier to use, the engineers aren't going to push back and say, oh, it's too expensive. You know, we're bringing the cost point down and to a point where, you know, you shouldn't, not have security. It's like saying, why wouldn't you have processing? There's more of our interview with Daniel Cooley on the EE Times website. There's a link to that story on the page with this episode's transcript. Colin Barnden is Principal Analyst at Semicast Research. We've had him on the podcast before, but these days, Colin has become an even more prolific contributor to EE Times. His recurring blog is called Seriously Skeptical, which is Colin in spades. Plain speaking is both rare and valuable. In his column, well, actually pretty much all the time, Colin speaks plainly and clearly about the automotive industry and autonomous vehicles. One of the things he's irritated by is the over-reliance on simulations in autonomous vehicle testing and the lack of understanding how people will use and react with autonomous vehicles. As you'll hear in their discussion, Barnden references a sequence from the film Sully. You might recall pilot Chesley Sullenberger, who in 2009 was piloting a passenger jet out of LaGuardia Airport when the jet struck some birds, knocking out both engines. 
Sully landed the jet safely in the Hudson River with no loss of life. Afterward, there was an inquiry. In the movie version, a congressional panel runs tape of two other pilots in a simulation of the flight. Those pilots in the simulation land the jet safely at another nearby airport called Teterboro. Here's the scene. Multiple airports, runways, two successful landings. We are simply mimicking what the computer already told us. You know, a lot of toes were stepped on in order to set this up for today. And, and frankly, I'm, I really don't know what you gentlemen plan to gain by it. Can we get serious now? Captain? We've all heard about the computer simulations, and now we are watching actual sims, but I can't quite believe you still have not taken into account the human factor. And now, here's EE Times International Editor Junko Yoshida with Colin Barnden. Hi, Colin. How are you? Hey, Junko. Great. Great to talk to you. All right. So, um, I'm here actually uh, to talk about your latest column uh, entitled... Can we get serious now? <laughs> now, as I recall, this isn't the first time you brought up either the movie Sally or Cap- Captain Sally uh, Salenberger, right? So what prompted you to draw the parallel between this line in the movie and the current status of autonomous vehicles? Yeah, so we talked about Sully, uh, I think that was March 2019, just after the uh, the second uh, Boeing 737 MAX uh, crash had happened. And we were talking about MCAS and uh, um, really we were drawing there some of the parallels around the problems of automation in aviation. Um, so really what brought me back to Sully this time was I was reading some of the, um, the blogs and some of the um, uh, claims being made by NVIDIA following uh, their... GPU technology conference earlier on uh, this month in May and um, NVIDIA and, and 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 as you can tell from the piece essentially really uh, w- many of the claims that, that I read um, not just from NVIDIA but from from other companies uh, around autonomous vehicles as well um, and here was an example where I, I just simply shouted out can we get serious now um, and it actually took me back to that scene and that line in the uh, in the film Sully um, and that really was the uh, the sort of the, the genesis for um, for, for for that piece. Yeah. So what do you see as that we are not serious about? I mean, can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So let, let's use some of the language um, from uh, NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board. So as they talk about in the, the Tesla hearings, uh, autonomous vehicles, and specifically they're talking about uh, autopilot, but they're also talking about uh, AV, autonomous vehicle technology in general. And the language that they use are these are test level systems this is not production equipment this is these are not production systems this is not oem automotive level uh qualified systems uh these are test level systems um and they're talking about that about autopilot and they're talking about that about uh, also the uh uber accident uh in tempe arizona uh in what was that march 2018 um so this is part of what is the issue that I've got here is that people are essentially talking about technology, which is in R&D, as if it was in production now. And there seems to be this disconnect between some of the language that's being used by uh, some of the semiconductor companies and some of the uh, the, the automakers. Uh, and I would draw out Tesla in particular. 
um, and, and essentially really where we are and what the real life capabilities of these systems actually is. Uh, and these systems are limited in their functionality today. Um, and the, a lot of what we're seeing about the claims that are being made um, and really the, the, the readiness of the technology doesn't match where these systems actually are in terms of their, their suitability for mass deployment um, today. So really that's what I'm trying to do is to bring out some of this disconnect really between what is the, uh, the hype um, and what is the reality. That's right. Okay. But, you know, I can only imagine that, uh, I don't know, you must get a lot of backlash by speaking out against autonomous vehicles under this current climate. I mean, can you tell me that what sort of, uh, you know, negative feedback are you getting from your audience? It, it, it's like people don't actually read the pieces and, and they don't read the arguments that are made. Um, so uh, we had an example recently of somebody saying, um, you know, well, unless there, there's zero arguments, uh, unless there's zero accidents, you're saying that there's no case for AVs. And, and, and I always come back to this point of let's get what I call driver monitoring and assistance technology deployed in, in basically everything first. Let, let's do what we know works and driver monitoring systems really to monitor for human distraction and fatigue. Let's help human drivers be safer drivers. Let's add the ADAS, let's add, add the, the autonomous emergency braking and the lane keep assistance systems. Let's get that out into production systems. Let's get that out into everything and let the market decide if autonomous vehicles uh, are required. Um, and I don't really understand why NHTSA is, uh, is resistant to following what's happening with uh, the, the European Union legislation and Euro NCAP, um, which is calling for, for these systems to be installed uh, for Euro NCAP from 2022 for testing and the European Union from 2024. And it's a timescale essentially that the automakers are having to follow in Europe. Why don't they just match to do that in the United States as well? That's, that's what I don't really understand. And the reason is cost. Um, um, and really that's creating this space for uh, a lot of the, the magical thinking around autonomous vehicle technology um, for um, people to say, well, it, it, you know, we, we kill 1.35 million people a year uh, as human drivers. So let's replace human drivers with machine drivers. Um, and and th that might happen, but that's a really a long way off. Exactly. And then I think uh, it's it, it, magical thinking is a good phrase to describe the current status, because when you think about it, too many people are still too obsessed with this futuristic idea of car without drivers. I mean, I thought that we passed that already, but people are still stuck in that idea, right? And that's the only way yeah. to save lives. That's what that's what they seem to claim. And that's the, that narrative needs to stop, in my opinion. Yeah. And I don't really understand where it comes from, but part of it is, you know, it's really the only piece of of equipment which as, as everyday citizens we actually get to use, which um, you know, weighs 5,000 pounds and at highway speeds of 55 miles an hour, it's lethal. Um, and, um, you know, we, ha we, we, need, we could really do with better driver training and driver education and better driver um, um, uh, driving standards. Um, and and these, these arguments that, well, we just simply need to take the, 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 the steering wheel out of human hands and replace it with machines and that the, with AI and deep learning, this technology is going to be perfect and we've magically solved this problem. Um, we may end up there in, in, in decades, um, but we won't be there in two to three years. Yep. There you go. Well, thank you very much, Colin. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Great, Junko. Always a pleasure talking to you too. Talk to you again okay. soon. For those of you monitoring the progress of self-driving vehicles, and there is some, 
progress that is. You might also want to check out Junko's recent story titled, Who Needs Autonomous Vehicles? Passenger vehicles are not, in fact, going to be replaced by self-driving cars anytime soon. That said, there are use cases for autonomous vehicles. Junko runs down what those use cases are. Again, we've got a link to the story on the podcast page, which you can find at www.eetimes.com slash podcast. David Benjamin is a novelist and essayist who's written knowledgeably about everything from sumo wrestling to consumer electronics. Like many other writers, he's also an avid reader, and he recently finished the 2004 nonfiction book, The Great Influenza, and he was kind enough to write about it for EE Times. We're always pleased to have Benji on the podcast, and this was a good occasion to have him back. Tell us about The Spanish Influenza of 1918. Okay, the book in question is The Great Influenza, the epic story of the deadliest plague in history by John M. Berry. Uh, and as you note, uh, it was called the, the Spanish Influenza, uh, but it originated actually probably uh, by all the evidence that the scientists and investigators have accumulated in Haskell County, Kansas in the late winter of 19, uh, 1918. So let's just talk a little bit about the specifics of the influenza. Um, that was a global epidemic, and it was pretty deadly. Yes, it was, uh, it was pandemic in the spring, and it killed quite a few people. Uh, it started really in uh, the army camps the, called cantonments, uh, where uh, U.S. troops were being hurriedly trained and packed together in, uh, in very overcrowded conditions in these cantonments, uh, and the influenza invaded one of these uh, one of these army camps in Kansas, uh, which started in a village in Haskell County. Uh, and uh, as the troops uh, moved from camp to camp, they spread the influenza. And as they moved from the United States on troop ships to Europe, uh, they spread the influenza. Uh, the Spanish uh, nomenclature. Uh, re resulted from the fact that the Spanish press, unlike most of the American and European press, uh, wrote quite a bit about the flu and how it was affecting troops and, uh, and cities and people in Europe. Uh, and so it came to be known as the Spanish flu, uh, even though it had originated in, in the United States. So uh, you've got a population that has, that's been exposed to the virus um, they're moving around the world because they're being deployed in, in a war. Uh, I got to imagine. So that that's bad conditions right there. Conditions bad in that, uh, they're, they're conditions that help spread the influenza. Uh, the flu gets spread again. Once they get into a war zone, uh, it goes around the world. But at the time, um, they didn't realize it was viral. Did they even understand uh, the functioning of a virus at the time? Uh, at the time, viruses were not really recognized as the cause of disease. One of the things that Barry points out is the uh, lousy condition of medical training in the United States up until uh, the late 19th century when there was a, a renaissance 
led by the, the creation of the Johns Hopkins Medical School in 1876 in Baltimore. But even when the influenza was spreading all over the world, the main culprit was considered to be a microbe, a, a bacterium called Bacillus influenzae, which had been discovered by a German uh, medical scientist named uh, Pfeiffer. And it was called the Pfeiffer microbe, actually. Uh, and that was, that was the, regarded as the, as the cause of the influenza for many years. Uh, and, and, and it wasn't until 1933, well, well beyond the, uh, the end of the influenza, that it was determined by a doctor named Shope that the influenza was basically a virus. Earlier, the poliomyelitis epidemic was associated with a virus, but, uh, but the influenza epidemic uh, pandemic was not really recognized as viral until it was well over. So the 1918 flu epidemic came in the middle of a period when people were beginning to learn about plagues and learning how to respond. And it goes back to some of the earliest rigorous medical attention paid to a plague in London decades earlier. And it comes in a kind of a, a timeline of how medical science began to learn how to track and figure out how to respond to, to various types of plague, yes? Yes, yes. Finding vaccines and finding serums uh, is extremely difficult and it's time consuming uh, and it's fraught with failure. But in the uh, cholera epidemic in London in the 1850s, a doctor named John Snow traced the source of the cholera to water from a well on Broad Street in London. And then with his efforts and, and a great deal of uh, political turmoil, the principles of uh, testing, which is what he did to discover that the cholera originated in the well, followed by tracing, uh, finding out who is who is sick, who was the index patient, and how far it had spread in the community, and then isolating everyone who was sick. Well, in that case, people had to be isolated. The cholera wasn't uh, contagious, but the isolation occurred with the well. The people couldn't. People had to stop using the well. Uh, but those three principles: uh, test, trace, and isolate, have been used uh, as public health measures ever since then. You know, with varying degrees of enthusiasm by public officials hmm. ever since. And that's true of the uh, the nineteen eighteen flu. There's. Uh... There were different responses based on the extent to which people bought into medical expertise and also the quality of leadership. Is that right? Oh, yes. Uh, oh, for instance, uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson, the president at the time, was committed to all-out war, uh, and he was committed to training as many troops as possible and sending them to the front as as quickly as possible on uh, troop ships that were as crowded as they could possibly be. And so uh, Woodrow Wilson became a, a, ve a vector for the influenza. And it is interesting and uh, frightening to note that from the time the influenza started until it ended, Woodrow Wilson never once spoke about it in public. Wow. Uh, there are more recent 
uh, political and uh, political echoes of that too. Uh, Ronald Reagan, and uh, to the extent uh, the current occupant of the Oval Office who actually called it a hoax for a little, our, our current pandemic, a hoax for a short while. Well, you know, he said it would be, it said it would be, it would disappear like a miracle, um, uh, which was, uh, which uh, was in the beginning of March uh, this year, uh, after which, uh, it, you know, and I believe there are about 500 cases in, in, in the United States at the time. Of course, now we have 100,000 people dead. Uh, but the, the greater issue, uh, and very, very, uh, John Barry focuses on this is the fact that it is essentially pandemic for public officials who might suffer from the consequences of uh, a disease like this to minimize and obfuscate when they should be telling people what's going on and how dangerous it is and asking them and ordering them uh, to take uh, measures, uh, essentially testing tracing and isolating that will protect people while medical science uh, struggles with the, with the huge dilemma of finding serums and vaccines and treatments that will save people's lives. Yeah. So uh, I know you're a bit of a scholar and you love digging into the details in the book you just read. Uh, did anything jump out at you as uh, odd interesting unique one of the things that Barry explains well is the is the uh, process of mutation in a virus like this uh, mm. the the coronavirus uh, and the influenza virus were both the kind of viruses that uh, invade the cell and reproduce inside the cell use the cell walls to protect themselves from antibodies then they explode out of the cell and spread throughout the, essentially throughout the respiratory system in the victim. Many of these uh, newborn cells are, are mutant cells. Most mutant cells, they, they mutate into something that's the, that can't survive. Uh, but other mutations change themselves to the point where they're not only capable of, of causing infection, but they're capable of fooling the immune system. In 1918, the first wave of the virus was uh, virulent and it spread everywhere and it attacked people and it was very, very contagious. It didn't kill that many people. The virus uh, faded out in the summertime and in the fall, it came back as a much stronger, much more lethal virus uh, that was a, that was essentially was killing people in a span of 24 to 48 hours uh, and by completely, uh, wow. uh, completely ripping apart their lungs. So what we learn from history is that uh, it's likely that what we have, the, ex the experience we're having now, isn't over by a long shot. Mm. You know, uh, one of the books I read recently was The Plague by uh, mm. Albert Camus. And uh, it's, it's about uh, a city that's, that's quarantined, that's shut off because they have, a, they have, they have a, a, uh, an outbreak of, of actual plague. Uh, mm. And one of and one of the things that that reminds you of uh, that you know, one of the things that came clear when I read that, and also when I read uh, Barry's book, is that it's it's going to last longer than you want it to last. It's it's going to yeah. linger and linger, and people's uh, ability to to hold together through this long stretch and to do things differently uh, is is a great test. 
uh, but it's, it's, it's something that, that, that has to be done. It's been done before. It can be done again. It's just that people have to, have to communicate and they have to trust each other. Benji mentioned a cholera outbreak in London in 1854, and he also mentioned John Snow, the medic who proposed that the source of the outbreak was a tainted water supply. Snow created a map in which he pinpointed cases of cholera. The creation of that map is considered one of the foundational moments in epidemiology. And here we find ourselves nearing the end of yet another podcast. To close most episodes, we like to note the anniversaries of great moments in technology history. This week, we're going to set our way back machine to May 30th, 1996. That was the day Intel Corp announced that hundreds of thousands of PCs would soon hit the market capable of making video calls using common phone lines. The setup would replace Intel's own ProShare video conferencing system, which it had introduced two years earlier in 1994. This is from an Intel ProShare promotional video. People like you who sell things and negotiate things and just plain talk to other people about things all need a way to be just plain better at things. You need a way to fax the fax to Frank in Philadelphia faster than a fax machine can fax. A way to edit the edition with Edward in Edmonton without going to Edmonton because it was due yesterday and can't wait until tomorrow or even until later today because time is money and this is definitely about money. You need a way to be better at things. This is a lawyer named Laura being better using ProShare personal conferencing on a PC. Actually, it's two lawyers in different cities like Little Rock and L.A. bantering about a contract, almost as if they were in the same room. It was almost like the future. ProShare acquired an ISDN line, a technology the phone companies were demonstrably reluctant to install, however. In the intervening two years, ProShare had attracted only 50,000 customers. It was not a success. The new system would work on certain PCs with the new 133 MHz Pentium processor, a new 28K modem designed for the service, and new video compression software. Importantly, it would not run on ISDN. It would run on standard TCP lines, twisted copper pair. Frank Gill, executive vice president of the Intel operation responsible for the system, told the New York Times, quote, The first release is clearly targeted at families, but I think this capability will also find its way to business very rapidly, unquote. Like ProShare, it was a failure. Between the new modem and the advanced compression software, the system would be capable of transmitting video at anywhere from 4 to 12 frames a second. To compare, broadcast TV runs at 24 frames per second. There was also a cost premium compared to a regular PC of an extra $200 to $300, mostly for the digital video camera. The whole system was too clunky and too expensive. But it did bring together all the elements of modern video conferencing. Standardized compute power, a modem, a standard communications connection, digital video, and digital video compression. Last week, I held video calls on literally six different video conferencing apps. And Plato Shrimp, we had the co-developer of ProShare on the podcast just two weeks ago. You can find our interview with Renee James now the CEO of Ampere Computer, on the website. And, of course, there's a link on this episode's webpage. 
There's also a YouTube video explaining the concept of Play-Doh shrimp. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. The weekly briefing is available on iTunes, Android, Spotify, Stitcher, and Blueberry. But if you get to the podcast via our website, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned and sometimes other goodies. Visit www.eetimes.com and click where it says radio to find the full archive of podcasts. Or go straight to www.eetimes.com slash podcasts, radio, podcasts. A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, adored by little statesmen and philosophers and divines. That's Ralph Waldo Emerson. Culture, people. Culture. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.